Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by producer Maggie Ivanova. It is just me and you, Maggie. First time on the air. We had a, a great little small group. How's it going? Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. It's so nice to be here. I have very big shoes to fill tonight, uh, but I am excited to be part of the show. Yeah, we were just me and you, but we had a great time with our guest, Dr. Lori Cohen. She's here to discuss pediatric short stature. This was a great episode. Uh, but before we go into it, Maggie, you get the reins this time. Tell us, tell us about the show. So we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. It was a great, great episode. Lots of good pearls. Maggie, tell us about our guest tonight. So we were lucky enough to be joined by Lori Cohen. She is the Division Chief of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes at Children's Hospital at Montefiore, where she specializes in growth issues and in endocrinopathies in childhood cancer survivors. At 4'11", she admits she may be vertically challenged, but to quote the Minions, short people maintain a great perspective on life because we're always looking up. Dr. Cohen has received honorariums in the past for presentations on growth hormone and has served as a site PI for lawn dating growth hormone with Pfizer. Today, Dr. Cohen teaches us how to interpret growth charts, when to pull the trigger on growth hormone evaluation, and how short stature isn't a disease, but may need an MRI every now and then. This was a great episode. It was uh, it was a short episode. That <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm under Chris. It's about yeah. it's about short stature. <laughs> All right. Dr. Lori Cohen, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for coming to the show. Um, because we're an informal group, you've already been gracious enough, but can we call you Lori? Of course. All right, Lori, thank you and welcome to the Cribsiders. I'm glad to be here. We are excited to get to know you. The listeners are excited to get to know you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe a one-liner or something about yourself and something that you enjoy doing outside of medicine? Well, I'm a wife, I have three adult children, and I am an aspiring photographer, never satisfied with my photos. That's great. You know, when I was um, younger, I went to photography camp as a child and was really into it. It's a fascinating... Do you do like the digitals or the the kind of old film and... Well, I used to do old film a long time ago. Now it's digital. I have a good camera, but I have to admit these days it's usually on the iPhone, although you'd be surprised what you can capture on an iPhone. I absolutely. I And how about the editing? Do you ever do the Photoshop things and all the advanced editing is always overwhelming for me? Are you a digital photographer? Are you embracing these new technologies for the, the art form? do a little bit on the phone. I have to admit, I have a father who's even better at photography. So when I want something edited a little bit, I just ship it off to him. That's a good way to do it. A good way to do it. Great. Maddie, do you want to do a, a get to know you question? Sure. Um, one that we always like to ask around here is, do you have any favorite book suggestions for so, us? Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, as for people who are physicians, one of the books that I think um, is an important read is The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, because it really makes you understand that different cultures perceive illness differently. 
that's a great book. I agree. It's a, like a great introduction to to medical anthropology and to different views of, of illness and certainly helps with building that cultural competency. I love asking about failures. I think, you know, we all go through them and sometimes in medicine there's a culture where we don't share failures. And I was hoping to see if if you might be willing to share a failure that you've had at some point in your um, life or career and maybe what you learned from it or how it's affected you. Well, I've had lots of failures. I think we all have. Um, I mean, one in particular was an R01 grant application that didn't get scored at all. And I actually didn't resubmit it because what I realized is that I wasn't trying hard enough because I really didn't want to stay in lab research. I wanted to be a clinician. I uh, love that story. And I feel like it's particularly as I transition to a more research career, um, I feel very in between worlds with clinical and research. And I think it's a nice reminder to kind of just follow the passion and what you really love. This is great. Thank you for sharing some of these uh, stories. I'm excited to dive into some content. But before we do that, let's hear from one of the sponsors that helps support the show. Hey team, before we continue, I wanted to share an Uncommon find. If you're looking for a new pick of the week, Uncommon Goods is your place to look. Uncommon Goods makes your holiday shopping stress-free by looking across the globe for the most remarkable, truly unique gifts. And for anyone on your shopping list, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. They have National Park glassware, which is great if you want to convince your non-residency friends that you still get time to travel. A kebab grilling set, which is a must-buy for any wilderness buff. And of course, the portable campfire that Justin used to woo his new wife. From banana hats to tabletop cornhole, they have unique gifts for even the worst people to shop for. Yeah, I have my eye on the bioluminescent octopus orb. More importantly, when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has more gift categories than a Christmas-themed Jeopardy episode. With every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give $1 back to a nonprofit partner of your choice, and they've donated more than $2.5 million already to date. That's a ton. That's even more than a lot of octopus orbs. That is a lot of octopus orbs. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash cribsiders. That's uncommongoods.com slash cribsiders for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we are all out of the ordinary. Why don't we get started with our first question? Maggie, you want to lead us off? Sure. Let's start out with the case. So Samuel Short is a nine-year-old boy presenting to primary care clinic uh, because his parents are concerned that he's the shortest kid in his class. He was born full term and there were no complications with the pregnancy. He has been consistently growing at the third to fourth percentile for height and the 15th percentile for weight. He's otherwise healthy and does not take any medications. He has a good appetite and no abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloody stool, polyuria, polydipsia, or headaches. Family history is just notable for diabetes in the mother. Mom had menarche at age 14, and father describes himself as a late bloomer. Midparental height is around the 50th percentile. So to start us off, how do we define short stature, and how do we accurately measure height, length, and growth velocity in pediatrics? So there is a definition for height stature. I mean, for short stature, it's height more than two standard deviations below the mean for age and sex and actually for your um, race, ethnicity, although that's difficult to determine. When you're measuring, you really want to try to get an accurate measurement. And so for height, we want to use some sort of stadiometer that has a um, 
flat movable head projection that you can place at a right angle to some sort of vertical surface that the child can stand against. You want to make sure they take up their shoes, which some specialties have a bad habit of leaving them on. Um, And you want to remove hair ornaments and braids, which sometimes gets parents a little bit upset after all that work they put into it. You want the child to face away from the wall with their heels together and their back straight, head, shoulders, buttocks, heels should all be in contact with that vertical surface. You want the child to look straight ahead, and then you bring the device's head uh, projection just right at the crown of the head. And you really want to measure height at least three times. Now, it's a little bit different if you're a baby, right? Because you can't get them to stand. So then you're doing a length. And you really need a length board with a rigid headpiece and a movable footpiece. And you need two people because one has to position the head and the other one has to straighten the baby out and get that movable footpiece against the heel. So this is really helpful. And I think a lot of times we go through the motions and maybe don't get a perfectly accurate reading. Let's say we have some excellent trained um, nurses or frontline staff who are getting these heights and we're about to go into the room and notice that this patient is in the low percentile for height. When do we start getting worried or what's the kind of process for how do we find these two standard deviations? What growth chart are we using? What red flags are, are we seeing? Or what are your, what are your thoughts when you start seeing this, um, this measurement? So remember that negative two standard deviations is really about 2.3 percentile, and the bottom growth chart line is usually third percentile or even the fifth percentile. So you shouldn't necessarily panic if that height is just below that. And then it's not just about the absolute height. It's the journey that got the child there. So I'm going to be more concerned about a kid who's been growing along one percentile and then suddenly deflects downwards than somebody who's just always been at that same percentile. I also want to, you know, when you only have one point uh, that's off, go remeasure the child yourself before you go and park on a really expensive investigation. I feel like that's such a core tenet of medicine is if there's a value that you don't like, recheck it, reorder the lab, remeasure, and and make sure that you're not just uh, chasing some kind of sporadic value. In our clinic, we have the height and the weight on these growth curves, and it's a great, beautiful visualization um, where it electronically plots them right on the 3% line. And so when they're falling off the growth curve, when they are below that 3%, we can kind of visualize it. But I know there's multiple types of growth curves. There's ages. There's there's different organizations. What's the final word on what growth chart should we be using? What's all the differences between them? Which is the right one that makes us smarter than the other primary care doctors using the wrong one? Well, hopefully with the EMRs these days, they're using the correct growth charts. But, uh, you know, for age 2 to 20 years, when the kids can stand, we use the CDC height charts. And their growth references, um, they basically just show how a large cross-section of the population grew. For the 0 to 2-year-old, where you're measuring length, um, we don't use the CDC length standards curves. Um, They actually reflected a predominantly small cohort of white infants from Ohio and how they grew from 1970 to the early 1990s. And they had very different feeding practices back then. And so we are now using the WHO charts that came from a multi-ethnic international cohort of high socioeconomic status. And these babies were exclusively or predominantly breastfed for at least four months and continued breastfeeding for at least 12 months. And they were measured actually 21 times in 24 months. And so those charts show how predominantly breastfed infants should grow under ideal conditions and are therefore considered growth standards. Less 
well known and not always in the EMR. There are some longitudinal growth curves, such as the Baron Bailey growth curve and the Tanner and Davies, which are useful to assess growth patterns in early and delayed matures. Some EMRs have height velocity curves, and while they're helpful, height velocity can really vary if you're just off a few millimeters. And so I actually like to look at the picture sometimes more than the absolute height velocity. Laura, you mentioned that the WHO growth chart for younger infants or specifically for breastfed infants that seem to have pretty good access to healthcare. You also mentioned this idea of some of the concerns that come up with trying to do this based on on race and some of the other using a multi-ethnic population, which seems reasonable for for the WHO. For someone like you, who, who's really an expert and knows items like this, are there limitations in the growth charts? Are there certain things that you're looking for where you say, this growth chart will not apply for, for this baby in front of me because XYZ? I think it's mostly when children have specific syndromes where these growth charts really break down. And there are specific syndrome growth charts. So for example, there's Turner syndrome growth chart, there's Down syndrome, then it's really inappropriate to use these other growth charts. These growth charts per se, the patterns are otherwise normal. We do know that bottle-fed babies don't gain weight as quickly as breastfed babies for the first six months, and then they gain weight more. And that was the problem that, if anything, the breastfed babies were more likely to be seen as a failure to thrive closer to age two on the old growth charts. But it's more when you talk about different populations what the percentiles are. So if you're from Scandinavia, you might be tall on our growth charts. Um, If you're from Guatemala, you might be short on our growth charts. But people should still grow at a sort of parallel to those lines. That makes a lot of sense. Maddie, do you want to take the next question? And when you are reviewing the growth charts, are there some red flags that would stand out to you and make you uh, pause or give you more concern? Yeah, I, I think kids who are extremely short are concerning. Kids who are shorter than we might expect for their genetic potential are concerning, and kids whose growth pattern changes. One of the things that I think always comes up when a child is at a lower growth chart or when there's questions coming up about someone being shorter in their class, like our patient here, is looking at the the parent's height. Um, And sometimes the parents are shorter, and that can maybe be reassuring. Sometimes there's not. And I We'll say in our wonderful Cashlack Memorial Children's Hospital, our, our hospital, EMR has something where you can type in the mid-parental height. Can you talk a little bit about that and what its implication is for uh, assessing children that there's concern for them being short? Yeah. So you can't obviously just average mother and father's heights because women and men are different. In general, men are about 13 centimeters or five inches taller than women. And so to get a mid-parental height, you just have to do this weighted average. And so, you know, for a boy, you're going to have to add 13 centimeters or five inches to mom's height. And for a girl, you're going to have to subtract 13 centimeters or five inches from the father's height before averaging it with the other parent. And that's going to give you the mid-parental height, which is a target height. But you know, not everybody is going to get to that exact target. And so again, we think of two standard deviations and two standard deviations is about 10 centimeters or 3.9 inches for boys and nine centimeters or 3.5 inches for girls in either direction. Now, clearly, if everybody in the family is at the same percentile, the kids are likely to be that similar percentile. But when kids are discrepant heights, you're going to have a lot more variation around that mid-parental height. And additionally, 
they're sort of, I'd say sort of a regression to the mean. So if you have children of short parents, they're less likely, I should say, they're likely to be less short than their parents. Well, children of tall parents are likely to be less tall than their parents. And then you also have to remember that midparental height calculation really doesn't capture all that polygenic variation. And now there's known to be like more than 12,000 common genetic variants that are sort of significantly associated with height. And so it's really that combined polygenic effects of those variants that explain much of the variation in height. So, you know, midparental height helps us, but the child isn't necessarily expected to get to that midparental height. You know, be really careful because if the parents are really short, just because the kid is getting to that midparental height doesn't mean that's normal, right? So if the father's 4'11 and the mother's 4'6", yeah, the kid might be heading towards that midparental height, but there probably is some sort of monogenic cause for their short stature. So it kind of sounds like that the midparental height is not a really wonderful metric. It's maybe a small data point of a, not to say goal height, but a target height that might be expected, but but really it's not something we should be hanging our hat on. Is that fair to say? I think it's really helpful. I just think there's a lot of variation, so you have to be careful. It's great. You know, if the midparental height's at the 97th percentile and the kid's at the third percentile, clearly something's wrong. And so maybe let's go and talk about that a little bit. You know, I think we're teasing around, we have a kid who's short. You know, let's say there is a kid who is under that 2.3 percentile. They are under the two standard deviations. Well, let's say their parents are actually um, a good average height and you are starting to see the red flags. They are not growing along. What are we thinking about? You know, what's on the differential for short stature? What are we worried about? Or what are some of the more common benign things that um, is, has this presentation? Well, you already talked about some of the benign things, right? So familial short stature would be one of them. And in a kid who's maybe a little bit shorter than you might like for the population, it may just be they also have constitutional delay of growth in puberty where they're going to grow a little bit more slowly. It's going to take a little bit longer, but at the end of the day, they'll end up normal population height on the lower end, um, what's otherwise known as a late bloomer. But if you have a kid who's very different from their family, you can sort of think of three different buckets, right? So you know, the first are intrinsic causes of short stature, such as small for gestational age, intrauterine growth retardation, where there actually isn't catch-up growth. Obviously, a lot of those kids do catch up. Um, or monogenic conditions. So, you know, conditions like Turner syndrome, there can be chondrodysplasias that tend to have disproportionate short stature. The second bucket is really um, systemic illnesses, and those usually present decreased weight to height ratio and are due to either relative or absolute undernutrition, like if you don't eat enough, um, if you have gastrointestinal illness, um, uncontrolled type 1 diabetes, or others that are related to their disease activity, presumably due to sort of increased metabolic demands, such as cyanotic heart disease. And then that third bucket are really the endocrinopathies, and they generally present with preserved weight gain. And so um, things like hypothyroidism and growth hormone deficiency, or even with an accelerated weight gain, like with Cushing syndrome, which can be due to endogenous cortisol production, but also exogenous. You know, you probably all have seen this when you give high doses of oral glucocorticoids. Um, and we do see it with inhaled glucocorticoids. In that case, those kids aren't always um, overweight. 
And that's interesting because we, we see a lot of patients in our clinics who are on inhaled corticosteroids for, for asthma. Um, is there a specific threshold where you become more concerned that those steroids would be impacting their growth? Um, so higher doses. Uh, so you definitely want to watch growth in those, in those cases. Uh, as respiratory function improves, they may be absorbed a little bit better through the lungs. So you always want to use the lowest dose possible. And so you really mentioned in those three buckets, it sounds like weight is one of the other factors that helps. Obviously, if there's a history of, like you mentioned, the um, small for gestational age, that can be a huge help. Um, but without that history, it sounds like the weight really helps differentiate between, as you mentioned, a monogenic concern where growth is, or a monogenic concern, sorry, um, where you mentioned either a monogenic concern or a almost like failure to thrive type, poor nutrition where weight and height are low, whereas the endocrinopathies are more consistent where you have stable and as predicted weight gain. Is that correct? Yeah, although the monogenic causes can really present with any kind of weight pattern as well. It's it's when you're seeing significant change in weight pattern. So for example, with um, pseudohypoparathyroidism, for example, they may be overweight or obese. So that's, I guess that, that maybe technically isn't sort of endocrinopathy, but not sort of classically what we're thinking about as hypothyroidism or growth hormone deficiency. That's helpful. So that's a really helpful way to look at it. And then just to close the loop on other things we talked about with some of the benign, like familial short stature or the constitutional uh, growth delay, those you would expect also weight to be preserved and not the patient to be uh, significant or the weight to height ratio specifically preserved. Is that correct or? For the most part, we would like to think that with familial short stature and constitutional delay, that their height and weight would be similar. Unfortunately, you know, we live in a society right now where there's a lot of overweight and obesity. So um, if they're growing well in that setting, we're less concerned, obviously, than if they're falling off in height. Beautiful. And outside of weight, are there any other things on their physical exam uh, that would make you concerned or other things that you're asking uh, on the history that uh, would make you more concerned about pathologic causes of growth failure? Yeah, well, obviously, you, besides asking birth weight in Lane, you want to get a really good past medical history. So if you know that the kid had cyanotic heart disease and, you know, they're still blue on physical exam, that'll, that's a giveaway. Um, review of systems is obviously really important. And, you know, you're looking at a review of systems. You're going to ask gastrointestinal symptoms, although I can tell you that gastrointestinal disease can be silent. You want to ask for neurologic findings like headaches. You know, what if there's a brain tumor causing an acquired growth hormone deficiency? You want to ask signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism, for example. You want to ask parents' heights and parents' patterns of puberty because they tend to be similar for the children. And on physical examination, you, you would like to get some sense of whether they have proportionate or disproportionate short stature in particular. As I said, the chondrodysplasias tend to have shorter limbs. You know, you want to look for any kind of dysmorphic feature signs of Turner syndrome, although you can have girls with Turner syndrome who really don't have any of the features. You want to do a good thyroid exam, but you can have hypothyroidism without a goiter, but some of those other signs and symptoms like um, myxedema, coarse hair, dry skin, delayed deep tendon reflexes, especially at the ankles, things like growth hormone deficiency. They may have frontal bossing and underdeveloped nasal bridge, sort of ripply abdominal fat. You know, you really want to do a good physical exam and just things that don't 
look like they should to you. And I think history and physical exam and review of the growth chart can often get you close to your diagnosis. And maybe as an example for this, you know, nine-year-old that I see in my clinic and his growth is below that two percentile, his weight is preserved, the weight to growth uh, height ratio is preserved. And so I am starting to worry about um, some of these endocrinopathies. There's no clear history of why he should be short for his height, I'm sorry, short for his age. And so I refer him to a pediatric endocrinologist. What's the first thing that you're doing other than maybe a comprehensive exam? When are you thinking about net steps for a workup? When do you pull the trigger? And what might be some of the first things we might consider in kind of further exploring someone we're concerned about? So I'm going to do all the same things that I just told you to do on history and physical examination. I'm going to really measure body proportions and get an idea of an upper to lower segment ratio or a sitting height, getting a good arm span just to decide whether I think there might be disproportionate short stature. I'm going to look for some features of things like Shock's gene mutations where they might have um, a metalling deformity, which is sort of like this little bump in the wrist. And I'm really going to look at that growth chart, and then I'm going to decide what to do next. And, you know, sometimes patients are sent, and I don't do anything because I'm not that worried, or I've seen a lot of constitutional delay in my time, and I'll just observe them. And sometimes I'll want to do a little bit more, and that little bit more can be um, a bone age x-ray or some laboratory studies or both. Would you ever want the primary care provider to, should I be sending them to you with a bone age ready to go? Or do you have, it sounds like that's not always the case. That's actually a lot of the times probably a physical exam or some monitoring and some primary care reassurances is uh, the first line. Well, you know, I think that if a child is growing at the third to fifth percentile and their family members are all short, I wouldn't do anything. And sometimes you're going to send them because you can't convince the family that there's not a problem. And in that case, you know, I wouldn't have you send anything. If there's some concerns about some growth failure, then I think at least sending a bone age can be helpful, but the endocrinologist is going to want to see that film, which means the family bringing it in on a CD, because we always read them ourselves. Um, Speaking of bone age, can you talk a little bit more about what a bone age is and how you use it in your uh, growth evaluation? So a bone age is typically of the left hand and wrist, and um, we're basically looking at the maturation and getting a sense, you know, basically how old the body thinks it is. And if the bone age is delayed, it gives the kid a little bit more time to grow. And if it's advanced, a little bit less time to grow. And so if you have a kid who's been growing a little bit more slowly, you want to see it delayed. And if they're growing a little bit more quickly, they might be accelerated. But if it's more than two standard deviations delayed or more than two standard deviations accelerated, it's more likely that there's pathology. Not 100%, but just more likely. And I should say that they're not that accurate in real little kids. Um, sometimes in the little ones, you can do a knee x-ray. Does it have to be the left knee? <laughs> you know, I don't know much about knee x-rays, to be quite honest, because I just don't order them. Believe it or not, there are some listeners, children or boomer parents, that don't have ExpressVPN installed on every single one of their devices. You wouldn't let your kids walk home from school without telling them not to go into any windowless vans offering candy. So why let them go online and be surrounded by targeted ads without using ExpressVPN? Why does every family need a VPN? Each device, whether a phone, computer, or tablet, has a unique IP address, which is like a really long, hard-to-remember phone number. It can reveal personal information about you, like where you live or how recently you looked up the bronchiolitis guidelines. 
It's super simple for a stranger online to find your IP address. And if you've ever clicked on a sketchy link, opened an email with a butt image, your IP address could have been exposed. So why use ExpressVPN? It's an app that hides your real IP address, replaces it with a dummy one, keeping you safe and private. So easy to use. Just download the ExpressVPN app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you are protected. Here's the coolest part about ExpressVPN. They let you choose what country you want your IP address to look like it's coming from. That's super useful because then you can use services like Netflix and Disney Plus who will give you different shows based on what country you're in. What a great way to pretend to explore the globe. You can secure your family's online activity and unlock tons of new shows by visiting expressvpn.com slash cribsiders. Use the link. You can get three extra months free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash cribsiders, expressvpn.com slash cribsiders to learn more. Uh, so coming back to Samuel, he had a bone age, which was consistent with seven years, six months. Uh, given his delayed bone age, family history of delayed puberty, and his normal growth velocity, he was ultimately diagnosed with constitutional delay. His growth was monitored uh, with his PCP's office every six months, and he continued to grow well. Uh, however, several years later, uh, Samuel's seven-year-old little brother uh, also comes to your clinic. Gio was born full term. He was initially tracking at the 25th percentile for height. However, starting at age five, his growth velocity declined and he's now at the fifth percentile. He continues to have a good appetite and weight is stable at the 30th percentile. He's otherwise healthy and developing appropriately. So kind of comparing and contrasting these two cases, what stands out to you and how would you approach this case differently? Yeah, so, you know, he's had a significant drop. It's not like he's had a slow decline in percentiles over time. He's, uh, you know, it sounds like over two years, he's dropped from the 25th percentile to the 5th percentile. So that's pretty concerning. And he's maintaining his weight. And so again, when he's maintaining his weight, we're thinking usually in endocrinopathy, although I should say that both celiac disease and Crohn's disease can present with a fall off in height before fall off Mm -hmm. in weight. That may be due to um, some growth hormone resistance from inflammation and other causes, but you know, for the most part, they are going to present first with a fall off in weight. And so, in a case like this, you know, I I do do celiac screening and a CBC and a SED rate, but I might not be looking for all the other systemic illnesses. And I certainly want to look at thyroid function, and I want to screen for growth hormone deficiency. And again, this is mostly because of that drop in velocity that is the concerning factor. And is this is a patient that we would be getting a bone age on as well? Definitely. And, you know, if it's acquired, you may see a delay back to the time of whatever the insult was. Interesting. So, for example, he started, you know, he had this abrupt fall off at age five. His bone age might be that of a five-year-old. And that's not terribly delayed. But again, it's just sort of his hand in hand went for when that started. No pun intended. <laughs> and just to get into a little bit more detail, but when you say you're screening for a growth hormone, what does that actually look like? Because I've seen, you know, different tests send out. Like, can you describe a little bit what's an IGF-1, um, an IGF binding protein? When do we use which ones and why? Yeah. So while you can measure growth hormone levels, they're not particularly helpful because growth hormone is secreted in pulses. And so you generally measure low growth hormone levels and you should just never in an initial evaluation send a growth hormone level. But IGF-1, which mediates sort of the growth promoting um, effects of growth hormone can be measured and that is more stable. But those levels are very age dependent. And in young children, that normal range 
really overlaps with growth hormone deficiency. You also have to be careful with it um, because when you get to the typical adolescent years, those sort of age-related levels are based on increased growth hormone secretion and higher IGF-1 levels. And so you want to interpret that IGF-1 level in those years based on tanner stage, on pubertal staging. The other factor that can be used is IGF binding protein 3. It's the major carrier for IGF-1, and it's also growth hormone dependent. It's actually not as good a discriminator, but it is less age-dependent and less nutritionally dependent, and it can be particularly helpful in the little ones. And presumably, these two biomarkers would be decreased in a patient with growth hormone deficiency. Is that safe to say? In profound growth hormone deficiency, they should both be low. Um, The absolute cutoffs aren't always clear. And so if they're lower end of normal, that may still indicate a partial growth hormone deficiency. Interesting. Can you tell us more about, you mentioned acquired growth hormone deficiency, partial growth hormone deficiencies. What are the causes and what's the maybe pathophysiology of making growth hormone deficient? So with sort of true congenital growth hormone deficiency, you can think of a whole variety of genetic causes. There are some pretty rare causes like mutations in the growth hormone releasing hormone receptor, the growth hormone gene, um, the growth hormone receptor, insulin-like growth factor 1, that's IGF-1, the IGF-1 receptor, in other transcription factors and signaling molecules um, involved in the development of the hypothalamus and pituitary um, bioinactive growth hormone with reduced activation of the JAK-STAT signaling pathway um, has been described, all relatively rare, and sometimes with the congenital um, growth hormone deficiencies, we just never find an explanation. When you see multiple anterior pituitary hormone deficiencies, though, that growth hormone deficiency probably is real. Acquired growth hormone deficiency, which is what you would be worried about in this case because he had a big change in his growth hormone pattern, is due his growth pattern, not growth hormone pattern, um, is due to injuries to the hypothalamus or pituitary. And so that can be trauma. It can be large tumors like craniopharyngiomas, optic pathway gliomas, germinomas, things that infiltrate the pituitary stalk, which includes the germinomas, but other um, infectious causes, um, sarcoidosis. Um, You can have an autoimmune process. You can have, obviously, surgery, cranial radiation, those can all cause acquired growth hormone deficiency. And you mentioned the partial growth hormone deficiency as well. Are those part of a congenital package or the beginning, you know, of a tumor that's growing? Are you concerned when you see some of these that like we need to be doing a brain MRI? What can you talk a little bit about once you find that there might be a problem? When are we pushing it and saying congenital? When are we saying we need to be searching for a secondary? cause? So it's kind of a double loaded shotgun um, question. I I can rephrase it if that's easier. Let me me rephrase it. Well, um, well, what do you think? I I think that my two questions are one, you know, uh, understanding partial growth hormone deficiency and what you do. And then the other is if you do have what uh, is presumed and acquired, are you then going on a a hunt? What you tell me what the better question is, and I'll I'll start with that. So there's a big question as to what partial growth hormone deficiency is basically how it should be defined and whether it really exists. Obviously, if you're making no growth hormone, you have growth hormone deficiency. And if you're growing normally, you have growth hormone sufficiency. 
but there are various tests that we can do to look at growth hormone. We look at peak responses of growth hormone to various stimuli when we're trying to make the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. And does a lower peak growth hormone mean that there is a less of a growth hormone or more of a growth hormone deficiency, I should say, than somebody who peaks a little bit higher? And, you know, in the United States, we use this cutoff of two tests of 10 to define growth hormone deficiency, but that's really including a lot of kids who just don't have growth hormone deficiency. And the Growth Hormone Research Society got together in a consensus statement and said, really, that level should be more like six or seven with the newer assays, which begs the question, who do you get an MRI on? And there was um, a recent study that suggested that those kids whose peaks are seven to 10, really, there are no significant MRI findings to warrant an MRI in that group. Certainly, if you have low growth hormone peak responses, you want to get an MRI. With the congenital kids, the kids who are presenting early on, it can be difficult to diagnose growth hormone deficiency, and there are some certain findings on MRI that really lead us to believe there's a permanent growth hormone deficiency. Those can be things like an ectopic posterior pituitary and a thinner absent pituitary stalk. Certainly with somebody with an acquired growth hormone deficiency, you want to make sure that there's not a tumor in there or some sort of infiltrative disease. That makes sense. So significant growth hormone deficiency warrants a brain MRI. This partial sounds like there's still some ambiguity, but that the, at least the risk of brain pathology at that higher level of 8, 9, or 10 seems far less risky. I will say, and maybe this is a tangent that can be cut, but I remember I had a friend from a another country who suggested that other countries provide growth hormone treatment, not to jump to treatment yet, but as a treatment for almost this non-pathological short statue. Is that something that is ongoing? Is that something that is a thing, almost like a cosmetic growth hormone supplement that you're aware of? So it's actually not so much other countries, but it's actually oh, more the United States. And so there is an FDA indication for growth hormone for kids whose height is more than negative 2.25 standard deviations below the mean. You also want them to be predicted to be that short too, because sometimes with constitutional delay, they'll be that short as the other kids are going through puberty and having their growth spurts and they just haven't had their growth spurt yet. But it doesn't work as well as it does with growth hormone deficiency. So with growth hormone deficiency, if the kid's being adherent to using the growth hormone, they should make their genetic potential. With the idiopathic short stature, the gains can be modest or even non-existent. Amazing. That's very, very helpful. I should say, though, that since we don't really know who responds or not, there are some people who test growth hormone sufficient who still grow really, really well with growth hormone. Uh, and that's actually a perfect segue, but what is the treatment? Is it just growth hormone? And in those cases, what are some factors to consider before starting somebody on growth hormone treatment? So growth hormone is a subcutaneous injection, and classically, it has been a nightly injection, although there has now been a weekly long-acting growth hormone that has been approved. I think the considerations are really what are you treating and talking about risks and benefits with families. So clearly, if somebody's profoundly growth hormone deficient, there's a significant benefit in having an adult height that's within normal population range. And also growth hormone deficiency has other um, metabolic abnormalities. So they tend to have increased adiposity, decreased muscle mass, lower bone mass, things like that decreased energy. When you start talking about, say, idiopathic short stature, then that risk-benefit changes a little bit. 
Now we know that growth hormone is relatively safe in the short term. There are some side effects. Typically, um, slip capital femoral epiphysis is one. Pseudotumor cerebri is another. Patients who are at risk for type 2 diabetes, growth hormone can sort of push them over the edge um, because growth hormone makes you more insulin resistant. But it's usually very well tolerated. What we don't really know are the longer-term risks. So there have been some concerns raised about increase in, in vascular accidents and cardiovascular disease, but the studies there are somewhat flawed. And the other thing to consider is that, well, we've used growth hormone for a long time now. Um, you know, growth hormone was first used in the late 1950s. That was cadaveric growth hormone, but the recombinant growth hormone that we use was first FDA approved in 1985. So we do have well, we're getting close to 40 years of a, a treatment. If you're talking about kids who are treated, we don't have anybody who's in their 70s or 80s to know whether there are any long-term effects. And actually, you mentioned that, you know, there's several different indications for growth hormone use. But I imagine sometimes in our very height-centric society, sometimes if somebody doesn't perhaps meet those specific indications, how do you navigate that conversation with parents who might be a little bit more uh, resistant to to those strict FDA indications? If, if that's a clear it's question, it's a really tough navigation, and there are certainly physicians out there who are swayed by families. Um, you know, personally, height is a little bit of a social construct, right? And there's this idea that being taller is better. That's not necessarily true for everybody. And, you know, I, I sort of joke sometimes with families that when we all go into outer space, everybody's going to ask me to make them shorter at the end because they're going to be stuck into little space capsules. You know, I think that the really the risks don't outweigh benefits where with the idiopathic short stature group, which presumably had some kids who had problems with the growth hormone signaling pathway, the average gains were about two inches and some had no gains and clearly some had more. And that's just with kids who might've had pathology. Now you're talking about normal, healthy kids. Their gains probably aren't as good. And a lot of the kids who come in are really the shorter boys who just haven't gone through puberty yet. And, you know, I've seen a number of those for second opinions and they're just not growth hormone deficient. If you just give them time, they will eventually get there. You know, I often see kids who are athletes, and so their parents are really worried about they're going to get banged up on the soccer field or playing hockey. But sometimes it's their short stature that makes them so good. You know, they're the ones who are sort of weaving in and out from everybody. And I and I like to remind people about Muggsy Bogues, the famous point guard who was five feet three inches and played in the NBA. Now, he might not be able to do that in the current NBA, but the fact is he held his own. So, you know, I think that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when parents are bringing kids in and saying it's wrong to be short. That may go a long way to them feeling that they're just not going to amount to everything. So, I, you know, I really want to stress the positive with kids. Um, but I don't give growth hormone just because a family says they can pay for it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I do think that that is a, a pressure. I, I hate to, to segue to this question, but I am fascinated about with treatment. So if you are treating this, this patient who um, has clear growth hormone deficiency, two questions. Um, I'm going to do my, my classic double barrel question. And I apologize. One, we're doing the brain MRI. Is there evidence on what percentage are going to find something, or is there idiopathic growth hormone deficiency that you're going to treat and has a normal brain MRI? 
So I think for most kids who are just sort of shorter and have been falling off in height, we don't find anything on MRI. Now, part of that is that we just overdiagnose growth hormone deficiency. So many kids, if you retest them once they're done growing, they're not growth hormone deficient. And it's probably not that they had a transient growth hormone deficiency. It's just that our testing is really problematic. Um, you, again, you're going to be more likely to find pathology on the kid who's really changed their growth trajectory. But, you know, for all the MRIs I've done, you know, very few of them are positive. Right. And that makes sense. And so for a patient that has a clean MRI or a, uh, a, an MRI without abnormal pathology who has signs of growth hormone deficiency on labs and is below the 2.25 percentile or the FDA approval even, we're treating them to, to help them out. What does that treatment look like? What How are you monitoring? What are you monitoring for success? Are there the side effects that you're monitoring, is it, is it a dose titration? You know, as someone who obviously doesn't do this in a primary care clinic, what does your routine follow-up look like for a child who is on uh, growth hormone treatment? Yeah, it's really debatable. I mean, people do things all different ways. So there are people who um, start with like sort of a higher dose and always and adjust like every three months based on weight. But I think most people don't do that at this point. And the more growth hormone deficient you are, the lower dose you actually need to grow well. And actually the lower IGF-1 level you attain and you can have sort of low normal IGF-1 levels and be growing like gangbusters. I think there are a lot of people who see kids every three months. I think that's a little bit too often to determine a height velocity and changes. I tend to see kids more like every four months. Um, if a kid's growing really well, um, I don't necessarily change the dose. I certainly look at IGF-1 levels when I start growth hormone or after I change a dose to make sure they're not going too high. Most people won't let the IGF-1 level go above plus two standard deviations. But there's a lot of variability in how people um, follow and monitor growth hormone. And how about stopping treatment? When do you stop treatment? So most people will stop when their height velocity is less than two centimeters per year. There is a push that when by some people that if you don't think they truly have a uh, sort of a congenital severe growth hormone deficiency, maybe trialing it off at when they reach a percentile that's consistent with their genetics, because we do overdiagnose growth hormone deficiency. But certainly we stop growth hormone once they're near adult height, with the exception that a kid who's got all the other pituitary hormones missing, they're almost certainly going to be permanently growth hormone deficient. And in that case, we may not stop it if insurance will let us get away with that. And that, it sounds like, is for some of those other benefits maybe or other, not just the actual height velocity, but adiposity, muscle tissue, and, and other... Right. So there's, a, so there's an indication for adult growth hormone deficiency treatment as well. One of the things we try to do on the show is identify racial, ethnic disparities, health inequities that occur throughout all of the core topics that we talk about in medicine. And I wonder if there are obvious research or findings in the field of short stature where some of these disparities exist either in the evaluation or treatment of short stature. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are racial and ethnic disparities that have been described in both um, evaluation and treatment of children with disordered growth. It's felt to be both due from over-investigation of the non-Hispanic white children, so sort of what you were alluding to earlier, uh, as well as maybe under-investigation and under-treatment of children from various minority communities. That makes sense. I feel like that's consistent with a lot of the 
disparities we see across core topics, but I think it's important we always try to identify them so we can address them. I think we covered most of the things. Anything else, Lori, that you think you'd like to, to mention or would be important for us to, to cover on the topic? Yeah, I just think, you know, some of the important things to remember are, one, that short stature in itself isn't a disease. It can be a sign of underlying pathology, but by itself, short stature doesn't mean that somebody has a disease. Um, And so I think it's really, really important to look at the growth chart. You know, height is an important vital sign in pediatrics. What I said earlier, if you find a point that's not consistent with prior pattern, go remeasure the patient yourself. It's important. Those are uh, excellent take-home points and I think are really good reminders. And I think this is a great approach and understanding of of a common chief complaint from parents. Um, This has been really, really helpful. Uh, We appreciate your time, your expertise. We'd like to ask, is there anything that you would like to plug, anything that you think our listeners should check out or anything that we can send them towards uh, as far as resources that you think would benefit listeners? Yeah. Um. You know, I think that there are some good review articles out there. Um, I think Maggie found a great review article out there um, that she showed me, uh, the Polidori article that was published in the Annals Pediatric Endocrinology and Metabolism in 2020. It's just sort of a nice summary of everything and gets into some of the genetics of short stature as well. You know, and then sort of my final plug is that there's actually nothing wrong with being short. I love it. It's a good, uh, it's a good, good uh, bookend to, to an excellent episode. This is great. So again, I want to, you know, thank you on behalf of the team, the producers, the listeners for, for sharing your time and your expertise. I think this has really been a great way to help decipher the approach to short stature, not a disease, um, but making sure we're not missing anything underlying. So thank you again for your time, your expertise. We, we really appreciate you. Thank you very much for having me. This has been another episode of the Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for a weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecripsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. Please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. Give us an email, thecripsiders at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Maggie Ivanova and Angela Zane, our showrunner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. And this has been Maggie Ivanova. Thank you, everyone, and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.